From a recording closet in the bowels of Denny Hall, where graduate students stumble around like the overeducated zombies they are, this is Craft. I'm your special guest host, Samantha Tucker. Today's guest is Lee Martin, Pulitzer Prize finalist, writer in all genres, my professor, mentor, and friend, Lee Martin. Hi, Lee. Hi, Sam. Welcome to Craft. Hey, it's really great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so we're here to talk about your new book, Late One Night, just out this week, right? Uh, yeah, I think so. It's been a blur. May 10th, I think it was out. I feel like I should do um, full disclosure here. Lee is my thesis advisor next semester, and I did not set up this interview to ensure that I pass the thesis. Right, which wouldn't have worked anyway. Okay, good to know. Um, so I had an idea. I want, I want to talk about the book first because everyone needs to go out and get it. I know that you've been doing readings and several interviews. I had an idea that we would do something fun. I was hoping that you would read the first three paragraphs of The Inside Jacket, but attempt to do so in a radio voice. <laughs> what do you think of that? Yeah, I'm up for it. Yeah, let's do it. And you can read, if you want to refer to yourself in the third person, you're welcome to read the last paragraph too. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, you ready? Here yes, I'm ready. On a night no one will ever forget, <laughs> Della Black and three of her seven children are killed in a horrific fire in their trailer. As the surviving children are caught in a custody battle between their well-intentioned neighbor and their father and his pregnant mistress, <laughs> new truths about what really happened the night of the fire come to light. When the fire marshal determines the cause, arson, rumors <laughs> quickly circulate as the townspeople search for answers. Ronnie Black is the kind of man who can leave his wife and children for a younger woman, but... Is he capable of something more sinister? <laughs> Ronnie and his girlfriend Brandy Tate maintain his innocence, but as the gossip continues, Ronnie feels his children and Brandy pulling away from him. Soon he finds himself at a crossroads. Should he bow to his fate or should he fight to prove that he's not the monster people paint him to be? <laughs> With humanity, sympathy, and stylistic brilliance, <laughs> Lee Martin examines the devastating effect of loss on a small community and the resilience of one family in the face of the ultimate tragedy. Should we end the interview there? <laughs> yeah, that's good. I feel like you're used to speaking in your radio voice. That was really accessible for you. I speak in my radio voice all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, I've, I've finished the book. I don't want to give it away to anyone. It's, it's a literary novel, but it's definitely like a suspenseful mystery thriller. What I was wondering was, how do you get started with something like this? Did you know from the get-go that you wanted to start with this fire like we've just talked about and did you know where you were going to end up because it's kind of a whodunit right right there's an element of suspense and mystery to it, it i call it a literary thriller mm -hmm. um i knew i was starting with the fire mm -hmm. which um came from the news from um where i grew up in southeastern illinois uh, okay there was a trailer fire um one winter night and uh, a mother and some of her children died in the fire wow and uh then when i found out that the husband was living outside the home with mm -hmm. somebody else it sort of sparked my imagination because I started playing the what if game. I said, what if um, gossip started to 
rise that he might have been involved in the fire, which was not the case in the true story. Uh -huh. But this is where imagination meets fact, and then I'm off and running. I'm just kind of curious myself about what might have happened late one night. <laughs> late one night. <laughs> is that where is that where a lot of your inspiration comes from? Like news that sparks your imagination. Um, I know you write a lot about where you come from and the people where you come from, so are you always kind of keeping an eye out for things that that interest you in that way? Yeah, I mean, I jokingly say that there's enough crime that happens in my part of southern Illinois <laughs> to keep me writing for a long, long time, but, you know, the truth of the matter is it's not just the crime that draws me to write uh, about it. It's It's some sort of moral ambiguity mm -hmm. uh, that makes me curious. So, for example, in Late One Night, the husband, Ronnie Black, who ends up becoming suspect mm -hmm. in, the, uh, in the fire, um, you know, I want to I write a, about that story in a way that makes it hard for anyone to say, well, he's a really horrible person and or he's a really good person. I'm always looking for those gray areas, uh, those yeah. kind of moral ambig ambiguous uh, areas. Um, but then I also want to say that, um, you know, I really, really love this part of the world that I that I come from. And mm -hmm. I do stay in touch with the folks there. In fact, next week we're doing a big event um, on Tuesday evening. Oh, where at? Uh, at Coco's Espresso and Wine Bar. <laughs> <laughs> um, and there'll be a lot of people out for that. And, uh, I mean, this is a part of the of the country that's, really economically depressed and um, uh, when I write about the people who live there in, in their imagined forms um, I'm always paying really close attention to um, how people in those sorts of situations maintain their dignity. I think that's really something you're known for right is I, I, mean, I don't know if you want to talk about the things that you're critically acclaimed for that's what we all writers want to do right is I don't know what I'm critically well, I feel for. like I read often that you're you're just great at treating your characters with empathy. Yeah, I think people say that a lot. And I, I, I've said this often that I think the act of writing is an act of empathy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're trying to figure out what it's like to live inside somebody else's skin. And so, yeah, it's one thing I take pride in. Um, I try to create characters that aren't completely admirable, but um, I try to give an understanding of why they do the things they do and, and what they carry around with them through their worlds. Are you kind of from the school of thought where characters... I mean, first you start out writing the characters and you have an idea and you're saying it's like fact turned into imagination, right? Do you Do you come from a place where you start to feel like the characters start to tell their own story? Like, you, you've written these people and now they kind of take over from there? Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I, I create the characters um, and I put them into a situation and often that situation comes from the headlines. Um, and then um, I just sort of try to occupy the characters and let them tell me and show me um, how they're going to get themselves into a world of trouble <laughs> and then how they're going to try to get out of it. And I'm going to see what that has to show me about living. Okay. I, w I wondered, how do you make the choice? Because you're a memoirist, you write nonfiction essays, you write short stories, novels. How do you make the choice when you're going to write these things that inspire you in real life when you're going to write about them in nonfiction or fiction? Well, the, usually the thing that determines whether I'm going to use, a, use material as um, fiction or nonfiction is 
if it's something that feels really, really important to the person I am, uh, and by that I mean if it seems important that I claim this and announce it to the world as mine, mm-hmm. then I'm going to use it in nonfiction. Mm-hmm. Um, but if not, if it's if it's a story like the trailer fire in late one night that really doesn't doesn't settle personally in me, but it it does arouse my curiosity, then I'm I'm going to do it in fiction. I like that answer. Okay, I want to ask you some. I asked. I, I interviewed Augustine Burroughs a few months ago. I don't know if you know that. Well, that's really nice. I'm glad you did that. I know. I'm so fancy. Yeah. I asked him though, and this is my new favorite interview question. What is the worst interview question you've ever been asked? Wow. Um, I hope probably, that wasn't probably it. that one. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in all honesty, this is not a very good one, is it? <laughs> um, I would really have to think about that. Let's go on. We'll circle back. Okay. What's the best interview question you've ever been asked? Uh, you ask a really good one about how I know when to put it in fiction and nonfiction. That's a really good question. Okay. That's yeah. pretty cool. Yeah. I don't know. The, I guess the worst questions are, um, and you know, there is no bad interview question because it's all PR, right? That's true. That's true. <laughs> Everyone buy late one night. <laughs> Late one night. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, you know, questions about, um, you know, kind of the general kind of questions like, how do you write? (laughs) How do you do that? Those sorts of things. Well, okay. So let me, I'm going to use that, but I'm going to get more specific. I do wonder, do you have a routine? Like, do you write every day? Do you listen to music while you write? What, What do you find inspires you in the day to day? Um, What's your setup like? My setup, my writing day starts with my running or doing a weight workout Mm -hmm. in the weight room. Mm -hmm. It always starts with some sort of physical exercise. Is that super early? No, unless it's on a day when I have to come in to be on a radio interview show. Oh, okay. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's usually not super early. I'm not a super early morning person, Uh but... um, you know, it's it's eight o'clock or so probably, mm-hmm. and I uh, I have some exercise, and then I have some breakfast, and mm-hmm. then I go to my writing room. Mm-hmm. And uh, do I do it every day? I wish I could say yes, um, but life intrudes, and obligations intrude, and teaching intrudes, mm-hmm. and thesis advising, <laughs> and so I, I I don't do it every day, but I've I've. Over the years, I've come to um, have some peace with that fact that it's not going to happen every day. But when I hit summer and when when um, when the the stuff about the new book starts to slow down, I'll write every day. Uh huh. Um, and um, you know, I don't listen to music while I write. I've never been able to do that. Yeah, I like I don't to do that I like either. to listen to music. Before I write, mm-hmm. sometimes I like to read poetry before mm-hmm. I write. Mm-hmm. Um, but usually it's just getting back into the manuscript I'm working on and finding the place where I left off. And I always try to, I take Hemingway's advice. I try to leave off in the middle of something. Uh huh. So I don't have to sit there the next day saying, oh, God, what am I going to write now? You know, I'm already in the middle of a scene or something that, that just requires me to keep going i have not actually heard that i'm gonna i'm gonna try and take that advice yeah hemingway always said to stop while there was still something it left in the well so it'd be there for you the next day okay how when you do 
when you are working every day, how much do you manage to get done? And is some of it editing or? Well, yes. I mean, the first part of the day is usually reading back over what I wrote the day before. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that's the way I get back into the writing is by just, you know, rewriting a sentence or, or changing something around. And, um, I mean, on days when I really, really don't feel like writing, mm -hmm. which they come, that's one way I can get back into the mood to write is to just kind of play around with something I've already written. Um, and then eventually I get back to where I left off and I, I keep going. And, I mean, a lot of times I sit down and I think, oh, man, nothing's going to happen today. Yeah. But if you sit there, <sighs> eventually something happens. As long and, as the internet is turned off, right? <laughs> well, that is true. That is true. Yeah. <laughs> I think this is something that the MFA has been really helpful to me and that I, I think a lot of young writers are very curious about, well, should I be writing every day and for how long should I be writing? Um, and I think I've kind of found my process here is that it's scattershot and I have I'm okay with it. Like that's just I'm finding out how I work. Yeah, and that's part of that's part of what an MFA does for you is it kind of teaches you who you are as a writer, what you need, what you can uh, do without. Um, and you know, there's there's no one single way to do this. We find out what works for us. Well, okay, I have, I have one last question. I think okay. we're going to wind up here, but wind down. We're going to wind down wind here. Down. Um, well, I said wind up because I have your <laughs> art collection um, on, on the brain. You're, I know you're, you're an artist yourself, but you also are an art collector of sorts. And I, I, wanted, to, I wanted everyone to know about um, your collection, so I think you should talk a little bit about that. I assume you're referring to my collection of wind-up toys. Yes, and when you say it in the radio voice, it's I'm taking it very seriously. <laughs> well, I think some of those wind-up toys are examples of art. They are, definitely. Uh, yeah, absolutely. No, you know, I got started when I was, I was teaching down at the University of North Texas, and whoever had had my office before me had left a wind-up toy on the bookshelf. It was a, Oh, wow. It was a bloody finger on feet, and it would <laughs> hop around. And I thought that would be a cool way to um, decide who gets to speak first in the workshop. <laughs> line that up and see who it points to. And that's how it all got started. And I, I have added very, very few to my collection because most of them come from people who give them to me. And mm -hmm. I've gotten some really, really cool ones here in the past year or so. I mean, you know, interesting designs. Uh, I just got um, from a former student um, a Ferris wheel oh. with little people in the cars, and it goes <laughs> round and round. And of course, all of these have a pedagogical purpose. Sure, of course, yeah, right? definitely. Art with a purpose, that's <laughs> right. what we do. What's your, what is your favorite wind-up toy that you have in your collection? Oh, man, that, oh, that's... Or how many do you have? I have no idea. I haven't counted them. And um, they're taking over my bookshelves, though. And um, it's hard to answer what the favorite one is. Um, although there are some that I've, I've, that I've, I've wound too tightly. And <laughs> now they don't work. That I sort of, I look at them and say, I'm so sorry I did that to you. I miss you. <laughs> So much metaphor there. <laughs> well, if you want to unwind um, and race through Lee's book, Late One Night is out this week. You can get it on Amazon. It's at Barnes & Nobles. 
it's fantastic the cover is beautiful too oh thank you the cover looks like art so thank yeah. you so much for being with me today lee martin thank you sam i appreciate it for more information from my guests visit www.crafttheshow.com this is doug dangler until next time be creative